Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, it is being called an epic fail of losses for Republicans as another critical bill goes down. Nikki Haley is calling it total chaos. Donald Trump is celebrating President Biden is saying it's time for Republicans to decide who they serve. Also, history in the making at the Supreme Court, nine justices will give their first indication of where they lean in the fight over removing Trump from the ballot ahead of the election for what he did after the last one. And we have new updates for you tonight as the U.S. is striking back for the deaths of three Americans in the Middle East. A top militia commander dead tonight, and there are dramatic new images and details. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. In the words of one Republican senator tonight, quote, I'm just pissed off. Lisa Murkowski is hardly the only one in her party who feels that way right now and is completely exasperated by what's been happening on Capitol Hill. In just the last 24 hours, her party lined up to sink the border bill that one of their own negotiated for months. You could hear the frustration in that senator's voice, James Lankford of Oklahoma, as he lamented how the politics have overtaken the policy. This is the pen that I was handed at that desk when I was sworn in to the United States Senate. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just gonna do press conferences. I can do press conferences from anywhere, but we can only make law from this room. No laws being made right now. Senator Mitch McConnell was even among the no votes today, even though he helped craft this bill, but that was after it was clear it was not going anywhere. Tonight, many in the Republican conference are sounding the alarm, worried that the dysfunction across the Capitol could lead to losses in the midterms. It's certainly no secret who is at the center of this dysfunction. Donald Trump is even taking credit for it. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. The last candidate who is standing between Donald Trump and the Republican nomination for president, Nikki Haley, summed up what's been happening with her party this way. Republicans lost a bill on the border. Republicans lost a bill on supporting Israel. The RNC chair lost her job. Donald Trump was found that he's not immune from any of the charges that are coming up. It is total chaos. That could be one thing that everyone in Washington agrees on, because right now the Senate 
is now trying to pass a version of that immigration bill with the national security parts, but minus the immigration parts, minus the border changes that Republicans had been demanding in exchange for that aid for Ukraine. Yet even that is up in the air at this moment. Senator Chuck Schumer just sent everyone home for the night as President Biden in New York at private fundraisers told donors he believes it's time for Republicans to decide, quote, who they serve. Here tonight, someone who knows the border battle inside and out, a Republican who used to represent one of the largest districts in Texas along the southern border, former Congressman Will Hurd. Welcome back to The Source, Congressman. I mean, you heard Speaker Johnson saying today that he does believe there are steady hands, as he described it, at the wheel. But is that what you see in what's happening where you used to work? Uh, absolutely not. It's ridiculous that they can't get things done. We can't get big things done. And one of the things I'm sure you've heard Governor Haley say time and time again, we shouldn't replace a Democratic chaos with Republican chaos. Uh, this is one of the reasons why Republicans haven't won the popular vote, the national popular vote in two decades. This kind of chaos is why Donald Trump lost the House, the White House, and the Senate in 2018, 2020, 2022. Uh, by the way, the last time a president did that was 100 years ago, Herbert Hoover, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. And you shouldn't have someone who's running for president applaud the fact that dysfunction actually happens in Washington, D.C. Uh, the border has been chaotic. Um, it's a crisis. Uh, something needs to get done. And these men and women in Congress were sent up there to solve problems. And, and unfortunately, you, all we're seeing is hand-wringing. You ran for president, but you're now endorsing Ambassador Haley here. The question is, you know, she just kind of summed it up there for voters. But how does that break through to, to Republican voters generally as she's arguing that it's in total chaos when, when Donald Trump is taking credit for the chaos? Well, one group of voters that it definitely is resonating with is general election voters. That's why Ambassador Haley is beating uh, Joe Biden by double digits. If we want to have a sure election in, in 2024, we should have Ambassador Haley as our nominee, not Donald Trump, because she trounces Joe Biden. And guess what? That helps people down the ballot. Uh, that could prevent us from losing the House. Um, that can ensure that we have the Senate and it rolls down to state Senate seats and, and city council races um, as as well. And so so the, but the message is resonating. We're seeing Ambassador Haley raising more money in the last month in June in, in January. Excuse me. Uh, she raised more money in one month than she had any previous quarter. And people are starting to realize there's one woman in the in, that's, that can prevent the rematch from hell between two grumpy old men. And that's Nikki Haley. Uh, but on on what's going to happen, talking about, you know, losing down ballot in the fall. I mean, what do Republicans run on? Because they hear this opportunity was where, you know, we heard a lot of Republicans on the in the Senate side believe that they kind of had Democrats at their will who were going to make concessions that, you know, Democrats wouldn't have voted for this bill if it was a Republican president, Republican Senate and a Republican House. But they were willing to, to vote for it here. I mean, how do Republicans run on that after turning down this immigration bill, even though it didn't have everything they wanted? It certainly was pretty conservative when you look at past legislation and past proposals. 
Look, th th this piece of legislation was missing some things. Of course, you never have perfect legislation, but not solving the problem uh, means you're opening yourself up to attack because uh, if something would have gotten done, you can say that the border crisis is so bad, even Democrats came to the table uh, to vote for Republican um, ideas. Um, that would have resonated with voters and those uh, Democrats would have to go around and champion a, a Republican bill. And uh, now uh, Democrats are going to say, hey, we're blaming Republicans. We try to come to the table and negotiate. Uh, th that's what's going to be written now. The reality is there's a lot on the border specifically that Joe Biden can do with a stroke of his pen, that he has power within the executive branch. And that's why we need a strong executive that understands um, the, the issues at the border. That's going to make sure that we stop catch and release and we do catch and deport. Uh, we got to make sure that we have someone that understands um, the, the problems and how asylum is being abused by people and how we're letting you know human traffickers but this would build, uh, get away asylum. and make money. It, it would address, address many parts. It, look, look, I'm 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 not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing with your with your sentiment. It would address parts of, of the asylum process. But what I'm saying is that Joe Biden still has power in his own DHS and directing DHS to stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. That's a policy that began under the final years of Donald Trump. And Joe Biden has continued and multiplied it by 100, uh, which has caused this chaos and in more north of 5.5 million people coming into our country illegally. Um, but but people in Congress are, are elected to get things done, um, not just beat their chest and scream about it. And unfortunately, when it comes to these issues, uh, many Republicans and Democrats would rather criticize and complain about the problem rather than fixing it. Well, that's Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat, obviously said today that told Jake Tapper, Republicans can't live in a world where immigration is actually solved because then they have nothing to run on. I mean, it's clear that politics is playing a factor. I don't think that applies to every Republican, but it is clear that it is playing a factor in their decision to to sink this. And, and that's why the American public has an important decision to make in, in the coming weeks, uh, that are we going to elect a leader of the Republican Party uh, that's going to be focused on actually solving problems or just complaining uh, about the past, about the additional drama. Uh, the drama is going to continue with Donald Trump. And that's why you know I'm supporting Ambassador Haley. And that's why I hope um, Ambassador Haley becomes the Republican nominee. Former Congressman Will Hurd, thank you for your time tonight. Always also here tonight, someone who is stuck in the middle of this mess on Capitol Hill, Democratic Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. And Senator, I mean, just to see what's been happening over the last 24 hours, it's pretty clear just the, the frustration. Right now, I think the question that uh, I'm wondering if you can give us the answer to is whether or not your party is going to be able to salvage at least part of this deal that, that doesn't include anything to do with immigration. Well, first, Caitlin, it's good to be with you. We're frustrated, disappointed. We'll tell you, it just it, it should have passed today. We're not going to give up. It's just too important the entire package is important. For example, aid to Ukraine is absolutely necessary now in order for Ukraine to stop the aggression of Russia. And if Russia wins in Ukraine, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to other countries in Europe and it risks the United States 
uh, military personnel getting involved if they attack a NATO country. So we're going to continue these efforts. It's important to get the Ukraine aid done, the Israel aid done, to uh, help the Taiwan, the humanitarian assistance. And yes, we are going to continue to fight for border security. This was a package that was carefully negotiated. It would have made a huge difference on our border. It is extremely frustrating. We did exactly what the Republicans wanted us to do. They said, put border security into the, uh, the, the security package for, for Ukraine. We did that, and then they said, take it out. Now they're saying, maybe you should put it back in again. The Republicans need to act in the best interest of our nation and not just respond uh, to President Trump. Senator, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because James Langford, who is the very conservative Republican senator of Oklahoma, who is who is negotiating this deal for his party uh, on their behalf. He had this really striking comment today uh, that I've been thinking about uh, on the floors. He was talking about the factors that were at play in sinking this. I want everyone to listen to that. I had a popular commentator four weeks ago that I talked to that told me flat out, before they knew any of the contents of the bill, any of the content, none, nothing was out at that point, that told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. Because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. I guess the question is, are, are popular commentators running the show on Capitol Hill or the people who are elected to be up there making laws? On, on the border security issues, the compromise that was in the package voted down today would have made a big difference on individuals coming to our border and the proper processing of people to come to our border. It would have set up a much more orderly process and stopped the large flow of people into America. The Republicans knew that. They knew that. And yes, part of the motivation and blocking this is they'd rather have it as a campaign issue than solve the problems. We have a crisis now. It's our responsibility to solve it. My Republican colleagues know better. They need to vote on what's right. How did negotiations work in the Senate going forward between, uh, I mean, Democrats obviously in the majority, but, but between the two parties in the Senate specifically, how, how does that work given they both were working on this for months, an independent, a Democrat, a Republican, among others, and it just totally and spectacularly collapsed? Well, I left the floor about two hours ago. I was in conversations with, with Senator Schumer and other members of the Senate. We're not going to give up. We are meeting tonight. We are negotiating with the Republicans. We're trying to find a path forward. It's just too critical for our national security. We've got to get this done. We've got to get to the finish line. So we're going to look for ways in which we can move this forward. Uh, right now, we have a vote scheduled for tomorrow that would move the security package, the aid to Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, Do you think and humanitarian pass? assistance, plus dealing with the... I don't know. It, it, we had 58 votes on the board t tonight for reconsideration. You need 60 uh, tomorrow. I know so many of, of my colleagues who voted no. I know that they support aid to Ukraine. They've said it over and over and over again. So I can't see how they can vote against bringing this bill to the floor that provides the aid to Ukraine and to Israel and to our friends uh, in Taiwan. So I, I would find it extremely uh, difficult to understand how they can justify 
voting no to get on the bill. This isn't even passage. This is to have the bill on the floor so we can consider amendments and have debate. Do we want to take up aid to Ukraine? Yeah, so many of my Republican colleagues who voted no today have said yes to that. Let's see how they vote tomorrow. But can I ask you, because I, I do think what people realize, maybe not fully under, realize or, or appreciate is that aid to Ukraine is literally on the table and it could evaporate if, if this doesn't go anywhere. There is no other aid for them to, to draw down from, to send to Ukraine, whether it's weapons or money. I mean, what are the implications if this doesn't go anywhere tomorrow, if the, the Senate can't get it even step one achieved? The soldiers in Ukraine are today rationing their ammunition because they don't have enough in order to keep the aggression of Russia at bay. There is territory in dispute tonight that Ukraine needs the help for military supplies that are not being provided because we don't have the resources to give them the help that they need because Congress hasn't passed the aid package. It is Mm -hmm. urgent that with that money be released. That's why uh, we are going to continue to work until we get this done. Uh, and our the vote today was was a major setback, but we're not going to give up. Senator Ben Cardin, we will stay tuned closely tomorrow to see what happens on the Hill. Thank you so much for joining us, us here on The Source. Thank you, Caitlin. Up next, breaking news here tonight, as there is a precise U.S. strike on the streets of Baghdad, killing a militant commander who is blamed for the attacks on American forces that happened. Also tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court is about to take on one of the biggest cases it's ever seen. Can Donald Trump stay on the ballot? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, the U.S. says it successfully killed a top commander of Khaitib Hezbollah, a powerful Iranian-backed militia in Iraq that officials say was responsible for those attacks on U.S. forces in the region. This is in the aftermath of that deadly drone strike on a car in Baghdad, part of a promise by President Biden and his national security advisors to continue retaliating for the deaths of those three U.S. soldiers who were killed in that deadly drone strike in Jordan. Right now, U.S. officials say there are no indications of collateral damage or civilian casualties as a result of what you're seeing here. Joining me tonight, CNN military analyst, retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Also here, Axios journalist Barack Ravid, who is also a CNN political and global affairs analyst. We'll start with you in a moment. But this commander, we're told, was in charge of logistical support. What's the impact of the U.S. taking him out tonight? So, Caitlin, it's actually really important. His, his name is Wissam al-Sabi. Uh, he was responsible for, as you said, logistical support as well as the drone production and movement of drones into the area where they can be launched. So, as a result of that, uh, he is a key figure. And because uh, you pick those key figures, he, in essence, was what we would call a high-value target. And a high-value target is one 
by definition that you want to take out in a situation like this. We have a lot of history of doing that kind of thing, uh, going all the way back to the drug wars in Latin America. But this type of operation shows how precise the intelligence was that we that we have on him. Well, can we also talk about how precise this this strike was? Because I mean, you could see from this video that it's a it's a crowded neighborhood in Baghdad. But I wonder what it says to you about how the U.S as they are continuing following the initial strikes that we saw, they're continuing to target these Hezbollah, Khatib Hezbollah senior leaders. Right. The Khatib Hezbollah senior leaders are, they like everybody else, they have a pattern of life. And what the intelligence uh, does when we look at this from a, a, an intelligence perspective is we determine that pattern of life. We see where these people are how they're going to and from uh, their different places, where they work, how they do things, and that's how we go after them. We go into their, uh, basically their thinking mode, and we see if we can find them uh, based on their patterns of behavior, and that is how we go after them. These are pretty senior leaders. Obviously, we see why they're, they're targeting them. But how much does the U.S. have to do to actually degrade their power of these groups? Because I, I imagine just taking one leader out does not do that. Yeah, you kind of have to think of these groups as, as like a hydra. There are many possible uh, heads of these different divisions within Qatar Hezbollah or any of these other groups. And when one is taken out, another one will replace it. Now, whether that person is as effective as the one who was taken out is, of course, another question. Uh, so what we're kind of banking on is basically attrition working in this particular case. And that attrition, as we take these people out, then it becomes a lot harder for them uh, to conduct their missions. Okay, and so we're monitoring the aftermath of this. Right now, still, we're told no civilian casualties. But Barack, as we're looking at this, you know, what we're also hearing from U.S. intelligence officials is that the deterring these attacks, they believe, also comes down to what is happening on the ground in Gaza. I mean, we just saw today the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu dismissing that counterproposal from Hamas for a ceasefire and a hostage deal as, I believe he called it, delusional, delusional was one of the words. The question I have is, is that... A no from him because he didn't seem to outright say that he was rejecting it. Yes, it's it was definitely, in my opinion, not a no. And he was even asked, I think, twice, Prime Minister, do you reject the response that Hamas gave? And he did not say yes, I reject it. He called it delusional. He called it he called it crazy. He said this would be a capitulation to accept it out of hand, but he did not reject it. And the reason he did not reject it is because the Israelis were quite surprised when they saw the response because they thought the response will deal with the, with the process, not with the substance. And then they saw a response that dealt a lot with the substance and looked more or less like a, I don't know, Ihya Sinwar's Ramadan gift list, meaning everything you can imagine that he would the want. Yeah, the Hamas leader from prisoners to ceasefire to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and to even, he asked for 60,000 mobile homes for Gaza to... Uh, for people who lost their homes in, in, in the war. So Israelis uh, just didn't know what to do with it necessarily? I think they would want to go now, and they already did, uh, go to the Qataris and to the Egyptians who are the mediators and ask them, what is this? What does it mean? Okay, does it mean that Hamas is giving here a maximalist position because it doesn't want to negotiate? Or this was just an addition to give us an idea what, is the, what Hamas wants to talk about in the actual negotiations? And the main question mark is whether we're going to see within days Hamas officials and Israeli officials coming to Cairo and engaging in what's called um, proximity talks, meaning both sides sitting in different rooms with Egyptian and Qatari mediators moving between the rooms to start talking about the actual details, 
and not just negotiate about how to negotiate. And Secretary Blinken just had to sit down with Netanyahu. You know, you've reported a lot on the widening gulf between the U.S. and Israel ever since October 7th. Hard to believe we're now at the four-month anniversary of that today. But, but what did you hear about how that meeting went? So I think it was okay, meaning, uh, as far as I know, nobody uh, shouted uh, on the, uh, the other side. Uh, Netanyahu did uh, say in his press conference that um, he protested to Blinken about this executive order President Biden signed on settler violence. Mm-hmm. But I think that what was most interesting is what Blinken said in his press conference. And what he said was that uh, while Hamas, the Hamas response had some non-starters, it did give space for getting an agreement. And this is very different from what the Israelis uh, said. And it's mm-hmm. even different from what President Biden said yesterday when he said that Hamas' uh, Hamas's response was a bit over the top. So I think the U.S. is pushing uh, towards uh, getting this deal. And why? Because the U.S. needs a ceasefire. Joe Biden needs a ceasefire. And he needs us to stop talking about it on TV So because of his election campaign. When he gets interrupted, and so did the vice president just yesterday. Barack Ravid, great reporting. Uh, Colonel, thank you so much for joining, obviously, with your expertise as well. Also tonight, an important update that we're continuing to follow here at CNN, as police in Austin say that they have the stabbing of a 23-year-old Palestinian-American does now meet the definition of a hate crime. Zachariah Doer was hospitalized, and he needed surgery after what happened on Sunday. He was leaving a pro-Palestinian protest when this stabbing occurred. And according to his father, Doer's anger extends to the White House over this particular issue that Barack was just talking about. He's in pain. He's in agony. He said, Mr. President, Mr. Joe Biden, I blame you. If you were called for a ceasefire three months ago, this will never happen. 36-year-old Bert James Bakers, I should note, is already facing charges of second-degree aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The district attorney there is going to have to decide now whether to elevate these charges to include the hate crime that it has now been determined to be. Up next for us here tonight on The Source, back to politics as President Biden, the incumbent, wants this election to be a referendum on Donald Trump, who he believes will be his opponent in this race. What he is telling donors tonight behind closed doors as he's also addressing the turmoil in the GOP on Capitol Hill. With congressional conservatives and a bit of a meltdown tonight, President Biden is using this moment going on offense against Republicans on what polls show is one of his weakest issues, immigration. He was speaking to supporters tonight at a fundraiser in New York, and he said, quote, Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. Here tonight to talk about that and everything that is happening on Capitol Hill, Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator Paul Begala, also Republican strategist Rena Shaw. And Rena, that's kind of my question. It is, is Biden going to be able to effectively, you know, switch this? Because it was or is, and that's why they kind of don't have the interest in keeping it that way, a pretty powerful argument against him right now. I think the messaging on all this has gotten really jumbled up on both sides. So the question is kind of how do you move forward from here on out? Every day it gives you this opportunity to say, 
who created the disaster. And every Republican wants to say, well, it's Biden who has this on his hands and therefore Mayorkas can change things. Oh, but let's just get rid of Mayorkas, right? So the three sensible folks who said, let's not get rid of Mayorkas, see the writing on the wall, that this is egg on their faces as well. This is in Congress's lap as well. And so I think what people fail to understand when they say the border is open and it's porous, these are Republicans who say this to me all the time. I say, well, law enforcement at the border is taking these credible claims of asylum and they're following the process that Congress has laid out. These are two entities, Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary, excuse me, the Secretary and Congress that should come together and fix things. But again, it gets back to Biden, Trump, Biden, Trump because of the election. So it's no telling who wins here, Caitlin. But again, the reality is this. We still have a situation at the border. Nobody seems to want to handle it. And talking about it responsibly, to me, I only see one person doing it, Nikki Haley. Paul, it is a cynical bet that they are taking, which is essentially, you know, it kind of neutralizes what they've been saying since December, that this is a national security crisis on the border and then sinking their own bill, at least doing something to address it. But I do question, you know, whether or not that that rings through with voters who so far intrinsically are holding President Biden responsible. Absolutely. And the key thing, that pull quote you had up there from our president was the first six words. Every day between now and November. You know, uh, Trump comes out of real estate where it's location, location, location. Communication is repetition, repetition, repetition. And by the way, Trump, the Republicans are great at that. They, they parrot what, whatever it is. I say they parrot. They repeat whatever it is Mr. Trump says. Democrats need to get in line behind Joe Biden and repeat this every single day. You know, by the, I think Biden is an underrated communicator. OK, I was helping the Obama reelect and he was the vice president. And he said, how's this for a slogan? General Motors is alive and bin Laden is dead. I was like, ooh, good one, Joe. And he said, um, don't compare us to the all, almighty, compare us to the alternative. That's a good one. So he's got the talent. I want to see the team on the field, though. He's got a really good cabinet. I never see him. Are they knocking on your door to come on this program? So a few are, but Weirdly, they know. <laughs> but they, no, they should, though. They should be out there buttressing this. But they have to say it every single day. Uh, and, and, okay, you want the slogan? They all ought to go out and say, we want to close the border they want to close the abortion clinics. Mm. Those are the two issues in this race. He can win back the, the immigration issue. I watched George W. Bush win back the education issue. Big Democratic issue. He campaigned. Bill Clinton won back the crime issue. Big Republican issue. He can do this. So tonight, I, I couldn't be happier. I've criticized the president. Well, I will say he's saying it off, off camera, not in front of reporters. He didn't speak to reporters as he got on Marine One. But what do you make of what Paul's argument is? I, I just don't see that discipline happening, Paul. I think it's hopeful. Um, again, it, because this administration tends to get in its own way. Uh, uh, take Joe out one day, let Joe be himself another day. Oh, let's not do any of that, right? Here he has a chance to say to the American people and make that argument of how this crisis ended up like it did. But I still remember, as most Republicans do, the failure of this administration to go to the border of Harris and Biden to physically take themselves there and address this. Instead, Harris, all I can remember is her just saying, just don't come. That's not a solution. Well, That's just as bad as the Republicans. That? Sure. Super Bowl is on Sunday, obviously mm -hmm. a huge audience. Biden, President Biden, you know, the president famously does an interview before it with whoever's hosting it. He did not do it last year. He's not doing it this year. Do you think that's a mistake? You know, you hate to turn down an audience. You know, it's, it's a like big audience. A, a big, <laughs> it's like the old joke about the politician back in the 1800s. There was a hanging and they asked the, the, the condemned, do you have any last words? He said, no. And the politician said, well, I have a few then. <laughs> you know, you don't ever want to pass it. Having said that, he may be making the right call in terms of the, the culture. Like, 
this is the one time we, we don't want to, not the one time, this is the one time we want to come together, drink beer, watch football, and now we have a politician talking to me. So it may be that that tradition has come and gone, it's time has passed. So I'm okay with that. If he will every, if he will keep to his word tonight and every day between now and November, they want chaos. You heard Will Hurd, a good Republican, former congressman, say they for chaos at the border. And they are. And I, I do think, I, I, for whatever problems they've had on the border before this, I think almost any American will nod their head if you say Trump's for chaos. That's what Nikki Haley is saying every day. Trump's for chaos, I'm for order. And, I, I, and he's got the case now to make. He's got the most conservative, strict enforcement bill ever proposed, and he's willing to support it, and the Republicans have killed it because they want chaos for their political ends. I think it's a good argument. I'm just not sure who wins here because I do think President Biden should be talking to the American people more frequently. Maybe it's shorter interviews, but be willing to take tough questions. Because let's be honest, even if he did agree to this interview before the Super Bowl, it'd be lighthearted. I mean, you've got an estimated 200 million Americans who are supposedly going to be watching this thing. That's half the country almost. And I would just say, um, look, this is a moment in which this Biden administration, as well as the campaign reelect, understands this is a president who looks weak every day of the week. And I don't know that one interview can change many minds that are very much made up. Paul every Begala. day between now and November, Mr. President. Keep your, keep <laughs> what is it? Repetition is the mother of learning. Paul Begala, Rita Shaw, Indeed. thank you both. Great to have you here in person in Washington. Tonight, we are just hours away from the start of a case here in Washington that could upend the 2024 presidential election. It's one of the first times that we do expect the Supreme Court to take a big role We'll tell you what is going to be decided by Trump's attorneys tomorrow. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. In just about 12 hours from now, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments over whether or not Donald Trump is eligible to be on the ballot. Even at this late hour, Democrats in Congress are calling for one of those justices, Justice Clarence Thomas, to sit this argument out. Dick Durbin, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee that you've seen here on The Source, tweeted, given the questions surrounding his wife's involvement, Justice Thomas should recuse himself so there's no question of bias. Another Democrat, Congressman Jamie Raskin, made a similar suggestion last month. Of course, the person they are talking about is Jenny Thomas. She has been a conservative activist for decades. She was in communication with the Trump, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, leading up to January 6th. And text messages that came out after show that she was also pushing false claims of widespread fraud in the election. CNN's senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here to break down everything. First off, just on this issue, I mean, does anyone really think that, that Justice Thomas will recuse himself? No, and there's no chance he will. He has not recused himself. But let me say this. I actually agree with uh, Representative Raskin and others. I think he should recuse himself because of his wife's involvement. And it's important to understand. Recusal is not punishment. There's not necessarily a judgment, like you've done something it's wrong. It's not admitting wrongdoing. Right. It just means you can have recusal for perfectly benign reasons. If your spouse works for a company and they're a party to a lawsuit, nothing wrong with that. You just, as a judge or justice, you say, I'm out. And that's what Justice Thomas should do now and should have been doing. 
but nobody can force him. There's no way to force him. These are Supreme Court justices. They do what they want. He will be sitting tomorrow. Okay, so he'll be there. All nine justices, three of whom Trump appointed, will be listening to this, which will be fascinating, I think, to hear the arguments and the different questions they have. What are you going to be listening for? I'm really going to be tuned into what the three liberal justices are going to say. Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, because it's fairly clear to me that the other six are going to rule against Colorado. They're going to rule in favor of Donald Trump. I think they're going to restore him to the ballot. One of the questions I have institutionally for the Supreme Court is, are they going to come up with at least one of the liberals and maybe a nine to zero bench? Because Chief Justice Roberts, I think this is really important to him that this not come through as yet another predictable six to three split. I think this is such a large case. It will be resonating through history. And I think he wants this to be seen as a moment when the Supreme Court could actually come together and agree on something just based on the law itself. And just to remind people, what's at the heart of this is this little known insurrectionist ban. Yeah. It has been used since 1919, yeah. I believe. I wrote 1991 earlier and I was like, no, that's wrong. No, for 1919. sure. I was alive then. You were. It was, it's not been used. <laughs> I was close. Um, 1919. They're basically uh, looking at an argument that has actually kind of gone surprisingly further than I even think some of the advocates of it thought it would go. Yeah, what's so interesting, it was ratified in 1868. It's barely been used. It was ratified after the Civil War to try to keep Confederates out of office. And this is brand new. And this really started as a theory you would see in the law reviews and maybe the scattered op-eds. It started shortly after January 6th. And it's gotten this far. And while I remain of the view that it will fail in the Supreme Court, I will say this. Give credit because we need some guidance on what on earth this thing is and how it works, most importantly. And no matter what, no matter who wins or loses, we will know a lot more about the 14th Amendment when this is all over. But they won't necessarily be deciding Donald Trump did or did not commit an insurrection or engage in it or partake in it or contribute to it. They may just forego that question altogether and just say, yeah, he should be on the ballot. I think they very likely will not make some grand declaration he did or did not engage in insurrection. First of all, not what the Supreme Court does. They're not fact finders. They don't have a witness box. They don't hold trials. They're going to be looking at the statutory, the legal, the constitutional questions. And I think they're going to be looking specifically, really, at two major things. One is the president and, quote, officer of the United States under the 14th Amendment. We're going to hear some deep dives into linguistics and history and that kind of thing. But the more important, I think, more likely basis for this decision is who decides how this works? Does it have to be the U.S. Congress setting out rules or can the states do it for themselves? You going to be watching? I'm ready. We'll be listening very closely, both Ellie Honig and I. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks, Up next here on The Source, a year-long investigation into President Biden and his handling of classified documents now done. The next steps right after this. Tonight, Attorney General Merrick Garland has notified Congress that special counsel Robert Herr has finished his investigation into President Biden's possible mishandling of classified documents. Her's report, which we are told is now under review by the White House Counsel's Office for any executive privilege issues, could be released to Congress and to us, the public, by the end of this week. As you know from our coverage here, no criminal charges are expected in that case, but we could learn more about the documents that were found at President Biden's home and office from his time as VP. Here tonight, former Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. You know, Biden himself was interviewed by the Special Counsel's Office for two days last fall. I believe it's over 100 aides who were also interviewed as part of this. What are you expecting to see? What are you going to be looking for in this report? I think what we're going to see in the report, Caitlin, is um, a report of incredible breadth and detail. 
um, from folks that I've spoken to, uh, there's no question that Special Counsel Hur has taken the approach of turning over every single conceivable rock, speaking to every person who might have had any exposure to the places where these documents were contained or to people who may have been involved in the decision-making process around them. So I think we're going to see a very, very detailed, granularly detailed report, um, but one that we know is not going to include the top-line um, uh, the, the headline-grabbing uh, moment of recommending criminal charges. Which is the opposite, of course, of the special counsel into Trump's mishandling of classified documents and what Jack Smith found there, and that Trump obviously was indicted on that. Uh, people will, I'm sure Republicans will, will certainly take parts of that report. How different are these two investigations in the sense of Trump's handling of classified documents and Biden's handling? Well, we'll see. I mean, from what we know so far, the difference is in that crucial element of intent, right? What you had in the, from the revelations of the search warrant and all the investigation that was done at Mar-a-Lago, we know that there is uh, uh, reason to believe the, that the special counsel has uh, evidence of the intentional retention of national defense information. So the question is, did the special counsel, her, find similar evidence of intentional retention of materials on the part of President Biden. By the simple fact that we know he's not recommending criminal charges, uh, the answer is likely no, he didn't find evidence of that. Um, but he is, in, a, in almost a self-defensive way, the special counsel here is going to reveal an enormous amount of detail to kind of prove his case that there's not more to see here. We didn't oh, find anything significant. So we might learn more as he's explaining why there are I think charges. he's going to go really deep. Okay. We'll more than we need. Well, then we'll talk to you on Friday probably <laughs> or whenever that report comes out. This other report that I'm fascinated by that came out today is showing, it's from the U.S., and it's showing that Chinese hackers were in American infrastructure for five years. What does that tell you about just the fact that they had access for at least five years, what all they had access to, and for how long without anyone in the U.S. understanding that they did? It tells us a lot of things. It tells us provisionally that the Chinese have upped their game in the cybersphere, right? Five, six, seven, eight years ago, we thought about the Chinese in terms of uh, their ability to just kind of break into systems and steal data almost for no apparent purpose. Like didn't even know what they were taking, just took anything they could get. Now what we're seeing is they were engaged in what is essentially operational preparation of the battlefield. Um, in traditional military terms, that's where you, you go out and prepare the battle space. You build fortified positions. You prepare to be able to fight once the fighting starts. That's what the Chinese have done in these systems, these critical infrastructure systems. They've maintained positions silently and covertly for years, creating the capability to really negatively impact us in the event that, that uh, um, hostilities start between us. I mean, but what we're hearing from Intel chiefs now is that they're already embedding themselves into this, this infrastructure, uh, systems like water and electricity that you're talking about. And I think the question is, do people have an understanding of just how bad that could be and how devastating that could be if they chose to, to wield that power? I think the answer to that is obviously no, right? Because a lot of the progress that the Chinese have been able to make is because many of our systems, critical infrastructure, our private sector systems, have not taken the steps they need to to protect themselves from that sort of infiltration. So yeah. uh, I think wholly no, we're not, most people are not aware of how vulnerable we are. Andrew McKay, as always, thank you. Thanks. And we'll be back in just a moment.
This just in is Marianne Williamson has announced that she is suspending her campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination, ending her long shot bid after 10 months of campaigning. Also, a quick reminder tonight, I will be anchoring special coverage of the Trump ballot battle at the Supreme Court with Jake Tapper. That starts right here on CNN at 9 a.m. tomorrow. But for now, CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip begins. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.